you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and join me in Matthew chapter 6. That is the passage that we're using. We've tried to remind you that it's also found in Luke. And in Luke, the disciples said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? So that gives us a little context of we're trying to say, okay, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And as we come this morning, you have this uh, outline. Some of you really don't like fill in the blanks. Uh, and all I can say is, please get over it and let's, let's go together, all right? And, uh, and with this outline, I really have a couple of desires. One, I have a desire to be able to cover more ground because we're on the same page, literally, together. But I also have a, a deep longing that we will not only encounter God when we worship and not only experience the community of the body of Christ, but that we can be regularly, consistently equipping you to engage the world. And hopefully, if you'll take this home, we're not going to cover all of the scriptures you see listed there, and it will give you a chance to go back over this in some quiet time before the Lord in your own personal Bible study and look up these verses and spend more time with them that we're not going to be able to spend a lot of time on every single verse that you see listed as a explanatory verse for what we're looking at this morning. As Johnny's already mentioned, we're talking about the Lord's Prayer, and you can come up with your own comfort level of whether you want to call it the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. And as we, we move through that process of understanding what we've been given here, so if, if we can go ahead and start right there. You see, I've already given you something to write down. Did you find it? All right. So is it going to be uh, the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer? Well, some would say that the Lord's Prayer is found when you go to that passage like John 17 and you see our Lord crying out as he's facing the cross and as he's praying for the mission of God and for the people of God in that great high priestly prayer. And some just very defensively say, no, you can't call this the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. I'm, I'm willing just to keep going and call it both, all right? But as you think about how the disciples are supposed to pray, here's what I want to ask you. Are these words that you are to say, or is this a pattern that you are to pray? As a child, and we basically have most generations represented it, but especially we have uh, one generation that's closer to my age and one that's closer to Johnny's age. And we we got to notice that that seems to be how God's putting us together as a church. And certainly in my generation, we learned the Lord's Prayer very perfunctorily. Well, I mean, we learned it. I mean, we did it in school. We, we did it at, at ball games. You know, we, we got together and huddled up and, 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 and put our hands in there. And rather than saying, go team, we said the Lord's prayer. And then everybody said, amen. You know, and I don't know if we were asking God to somehow bless our game or what we were praying, but, but we learned this Lord's prayer. We, we said it together. But isn't it interesting that right here in Matthew chapter 6, that Jesus just got through saying to them, you're not supposed to just say meaningless words, that you don't know what they are. You're not supposed to be repeating phrases like the Gentiles that you don't even know what they mean. So I think we can safely say, these are not words that we're supposed to say. Instead, this is more of a pattern that we're supposed to pray. And when he is giving them this pattern of how to approach prayer, 
I want you to notice that there is a distinct progression. Notice the progression. After he starts off crying, our father, then he gives three petitions or requests that are aimed at God. And then he gives three petitions or requests that reference us. Now, I don't know if Johnny meant to do this earlier, but he, he pointed out when he was talking about praying together as a church family. You know what's missing in this Lord's Prayer? There's no I in team. <laughs> there, there's no I in this Lord's Prayer. It is our Father. Then it's give us this day our daily bread. Notice it's the plural. Even though it's a personal pronoun, it's, it's plural. Now, does that mean that individuals can't pray and you can only do it when you're with somebody? <laughs> no, but, it, but it's showing us how we're in this thing together. And we can even pray for each other this way as it moves from the petitions referencing God to the petitions that are talking about us. So as we approach the Lord's Prayer today and we start getting into the actual words of it, I wanted you to see that somewhat of a similar outline as it talks to our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So you see the progression, the parallelism, the, the symmetry that's there. But let's ask one more question before we dive in. What about the ending to the prayer? Chances are you memorized it and you said, are you saying? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What about that? Well, some would say that could be referred to as a doxology. Because in the word doxa in the Greek speaks of glory. And so a doxology is this glory-giving thing that we weave together to say or to sing and certainly, if you memorize this in the King James, you had for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So as part of my equipping duty, I need to speak to why it's not there in your more modern translations. There's a thing in theology called textual criticism. It doesn't mean people that criticize the text. It means people that study the text. And as they study the text, they look for the absolute best text and compare all of the historical documents and come up with what they believe to be the genuine, authentic manuscripts as close as possible to when the Holy Spirit moved upon Matthew to record the words of Jesus, just like he said, when I'm gone, the Spirit will bring back to your memory all my words. And so as this was recorded and captured and written down, those who compare the ancient text do not find that last doc, doc, doxology listed and that's why it's missing in some of your Bibles now some of you say wait a minute I mean I thought the Bible was written I, I'll, I'll never forget the guy as I was over in India and we were talking and, and he said to me he said so I hear you talking about Luke and about how the Bible was written through Luke's perspective did Luke write it or did the Holy Spirit write it? 
this was an attorney, all right, <laughs> that was a brand new believer asking me that question. I thought, great question. Because that gives us a chance to talk about the inspiration of Scripture, of how God moved upon the human vessel and used, just like he used Paul and he used Luke, as he moved upon Matthew, and this came to us. But the King James was translated in 1611, and a lot of Greek manuscripts have been found since then. But lest it cause fear in you, and that's the whole purpose. I'm trying to, I'm trying to disarm your fear in textual criticism, okay? Lest it cause fear in you, go back to many of the ancient documents that people often refer to, whether it be some great literary work or some great philosopher, and they go way back and try to take us back to looking at those writings. I will say with complete confidence, there are thousands more biblical manuscripts than there are individual copies of those documents that everybody trusts and you studied in your English class as you looked back at ancient poets and philosophers and you looked back at ancient writings. So are we okay? Do, do you see how that works? So I wanted you to know why that's missing and what it means that it is a doxology, it is an appropriate ending to the prayer. If you memorize it in song, keep singing it, all right? I mean, it's good, it's good wording, but it's not found right here. So now, we come to pray like this. Pray in this manner. Follow this pattern. And it begins, our Father in heaven. What do we know about our Father? Why did Jesus start it that way? Well, he said, our Father, and we know from what we've already read here in the book of Luke that our Father sees. Do you remember looking at that? When we talked about the giving of alms, we ended it, and we came down to verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he talked about prayer, and it, it comes down to the end of verse 6. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Or we came down and we talked about fasting, and we looked at how it ended in verse 18. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. This morning we know that our father sees. What does he see? Well, man looks on the outside God looks on the heart. Our Father sees everything completely with x-ray vision, with eternal perception and perspective on our lives. And so when we come to him and we cry, our Father, we know that he sees. He sees everything about us. He sees everything about our circumstance. He sees everything from the beginning to the end. Our Father sees. So when we come to him, we know that we're not coming to somebody that we need to say, okay, God, I need to talk to you about something that maybe you don't know about this yet, okay? He sees. And Jesus just said right before these words, our Father knows. Look at what it says he knows. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. He knows everything we need. He sees, 
and he knows. And as we come to him, we're not coming to someone in the dark. We're coming to someone who himself is light. And as we call on him and we pray to him, we know that he knows us. So when we call him Father, what are we saying? Well, I, I just want to hit pause for a minute. And this is the first time in my life I've ever, in a sermon, read from the Baptist faith and message. All right? But, but the Baptist faith and message has something. This is our statement of faith as Baptists. And it has something in here that's just amazing to me when it talks about how God is our Father. Now, the first part may not inspire you quite as much as the last, but hang on just a second, all right? God as Father reigns with providential care over his universe, his creatures, and the flow of the stream of human history according to the purposes of his grace. He is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, he is all-loving, and he is all-wise. Now, catch this part. God is Father in truth to those who become the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He is fatherly in his attitude toward all men. Now, let me, let me see if we can see why that would be important. Because you're going to meet people in all of your everyday life, and you're going to find people that think, okay, God is the Father of us all. He is the great Father in heaven. And there's that sense of transcendence and that sense of universality, and he is the father. And technically, I, I guess that's okay. Because he is father of the universe. He is father of the creation. He is father over all of his creatures. He is father in all of time and history. And he is fatherly toward his creation. But I don't think that's where Jesus was going with this, our Father. There's every indication that what Jesus was trying to say to his disciples, remember that's who he's teaching it to, to his disciples as he taught them to pray. He is calling on them to pray to a Father who in unique relationship, not just with creation, but with recreation he has made us into new creatures, and we come to him, and we cry out to him as our father. Now, I've given you some verses, and for those of you that are taking notes and writing in the blanks, you'll be glad to know that I'm not giving you what to write in these blanks, okay? Because there's too much you could say, and you're either going to have to write something down or take it home with you, all right? But I just want to show you these verses for just a moment and tell you what they say when we ask the question, do I really call him Father, first, John 1, verse 12. Do you remember how John started his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he comes down here after talking about the light was in the world, and the world did not know him. And then he says this, but as many as received him, to those who believed in him, to those he gave the right to be called the children of God. The right, the authority, the privilege. The old King James said to them he gave the power to become the children of God. And I used to think that power was the dunamis power, but that's not what it's talking about. It's positional right. It's a place of belonging. So he says... For those who believed and those who received, 
he gave the right to be called children of God. What about John 14, verse 6? Jesus said, I am the way. Come on, church, you know it with me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you remember how it keeps going? No one comes to the Father but by me. So when we say our Father, we're recognizing that we have received him, we have believed in him, he's given us the right to call him Father because we are his children and we go to him because Jesus has made a way for us to go to him. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and he's invited us to the Father. Well, what about Romans 8? Well, if you turn to Romans 8 and you begin reading there, you read verses like this. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Too bad that Elaine couldn't be here this morning. She's a very faithful prayer partner and encourager friend. And she, she wrote me this morning and said, I can't, sorry, I can't be there. It's not feeling well. She's, she's had to run to the clinic to get a little more help. She's really struggling because I'll keep praying for her. But she's one that always says to me, she says, well, I'll talk to Papa about that. And she doesn't mean any disrespect when she says Papa. She's using a very intimate term because she knows that's what the Greek is saying here because Paul's riding along in Greek and, and he comes to the place, he says, whereby we cry, and he switches over to Aramaic, Abba. Now, think about it. I'm convinced this is true, just my theory. The whole reason that men go by da, da, ba, ba, papa is because that's the first words the kids say. And so dads think they're talking to them. Maybe it's harder to say mama than it is papa, okay? But, but every language has some kind of word that they use. Recently, I received an, an email from a friend, and they said, yeah, our grandkids call us uh, babu, which is Swahili for, for grandfather, and then gave another uh, word for the grandmother in another language. And I was so glad to get that from a genuine Swahili speaker. Because my grandkids have been calling me Babu now for over 20 years because they, we told them it was Swahili for grandfather. And I've always hoped it really was, okay? <laughs> and and, and they, they affirmed to me that it really was, okay? Ba, ba, pa, pa, da, da. The scripture, just to make sure we get it home very intimately, says the spirit of God who comes into the heart of the child of God moves in us whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Lest you think that's an isolated situation, turn over to Galatians. You'll find in the book of Galatians in chapter 4, it's talking about how we have become sons of God. And in Galatians 4 verse 6, it says, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So Jesus, not making reference to the man upstairs, not making reference to the eternal God of the universe. He brings it first very intimately home and says, when you pray, say, our Father. That's some of you are using Blue Letter Bible. And, he, no, he, he said Father here. He didn't say Abba, but I'm making the application that that was the intent of a very personal cry. But notice, 
he quantifies by saying, our Father in heaven. Why did he list that when he was teaching us to pray? Because there's this great tension between the transcendence of God and the intimacy of God. There's this great tension between the massive creating power of God and the miniature, minuscule power of God. Do you know the same one who spoke and the world came into being and the planets found their orbits and the stars found their place is the same one who created the very finely tuned wing on the hummingbird and put into place every part of your inner being down to the molecules that hold you together. Our Father in heaven. As he speaks to the heavenly reign of our Father, we're reminded of a passage like Isaiah 55. I hope you read this. I hope you go home and look at it. For in Isaiah 55, it says, would have been a good one to read yesterday when it talked about the rain and the snow coming down. All right, it's there. But it says, his ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are are not our thoughts. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's thoughts higher than our thoughts and God's ways higher than our ways. So do you see it? Our Father in heaven, as we've covered all these verses, now turn it over to the back and notice what it says. It says that God is the one who has thoughts and ways that are not like ours. So what about his attributes? How could we describe him? Well, he's indescribable, so I'm not really going to try. But I will make reference to some of his attributes. Think about how 1 Timothy 1 verse 17 says, Unto the God eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. These, as we consider his eternal attributes, first, as the eternal one, he is the Alpha and the Omega. It's what Jesus said about himself as he described himself there in the first part of the Revelation. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. So this morning, if you find yourself somewhere along the alphabet line, you know, maybe you're in the elemental piece, you know, and, and you find yourself there somewhere in, that was a little joke. Well, I didn't even get a smile out of anybody, all right? Come on, walk with me here. Stay with me, all right? So if you find yourself somewhere along the alphabet song, remember, Jesus is the alpha and he is the omega. And the father that you're talking about is not surprised by the corner you just turned and what you found there. Our Father in heaven, he's eternal. He is omniscient. Now, what does that word mean? It means all-knowing. And as the omniscient, eternal God, I can't help but think of something like Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. You understand when I rise up, you understand when I sit down, 
You have even known my thoughts from afar. Lord, even before the word gets on my tongue, you knew what I was going to say. And then the psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. You think? Of course, you don't even know yourself that well. But he completely knows us. Oh, if you're looking for a passage to make you think about the beauty of creation in a child, you look at Psalm 139, and you look at how God is at work creating the child, even in the mother's womb. And you read something like, before I lived a single day of my life, Lord, you knew every day I would live. Our Father in heaven, you are eternal, you are omniscient. And you are omnipotent. It doesn't mean that he just knows these things. He's powerful enough to do anything. There's nothing too difficult for him. And so the one that we come to and we cry out and we say to him, Oh Lord, we desperately need you. What do we know about this father we're praying to? I gave you there a reference of Romans 1, verse 19 and 20. As Paul's talking about how God has made himself known, listen to what he says. For what can be known about God is already plain. God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived since in the creation of the world and these things have been made so that everyone is without excuse. Oh, there are a lot of people that tell you, well, I don't really believe in God. Come on, really? I mean, look up into the heavens. Look around on the earth. Look at this creation. You think it just happened? Come on. God says, look. You think you're smart? <laughs> I remember... <laughs> Speaking of elections, uh, I remember I remember back when there was the election in, in, in Florida and they were counting the hanging chads and nobody could figure out who was president. Some of you are old enough to remember that, all right? They couldn't even figure out who was the president. And I happened to find myself thinking about what, what the Bible says in Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in such an uproar? He who sits in the heavens laughs. And I thought, God's probably looking down on America. You think you're so smart? I mean, you've got all these things. You've got all that stuff. You've got all these edu this education, and you can't even count. Listen, God has demonstrated to us through creation who he is. He has put before us his eternal attributes, even his divine nature and his eternal power. We can see that from the things that are made. So as we bring that home this morning, and it comes to us as we pray. Our Father, you're intimate. You know me. You're in heaven. You're eternal. You're omnipotent. You're omniscient. As we pray, let me remind you of how we approach him. Some would say the posture is kneeling. That's right. Some would say the posture is standing out of respect. That's right. Some would say you should lay on your face. That's, that's right. There are many times for that. 
But if we're going to pray at all times, and if we're going to pray without ceasing, we know that God has not limited his hearing to when we're in a certain posture. But he has limited his hearing in response to the attitude of humbling ourselves before him. It's really that simple. You humble yourself. What does that mean? God, you're smarter than me. You know the answers I don't. You got a plan I can't figure it out. You're eternal. I'm earthly. Oh, God, I humble myself before you. As we humble ourselves before him, we know that we're responding to his invitation. What is his invitation? Jeremiah 33, he says, come unto me and I will answer you and I'll show you great and mighty things that you don't even know. Jesus said, come unto me, all you labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And here we read, as we look later in the New Testament, God says, if you will draw near to me, I will draw near to you. I will be found. We had a couple of girls come over to bake cookies and uh, play with KK on Friday afternoon. <laughs> she had an afternoon play date. And I was reminded that kids like to play hide and seek. And when they came and they hid in the room with me, I had to decide when she came in if I was going to go right over there. Or, uh, or make her find them on her own. Sometimes people act like, well, I could pray, but I don't, I mean, I don't know how to find God. Hey, let me tell you how to find him. You humble yourself. You admit that you have a need. And you'll hear him say, that's why my son died for you. To prove to you how much I love you and how committed I am to you. And that's why I sent my spirit to come and live in your heart, to be your guide, and to comfort you, and know that I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And then watch how the prayer unfolds. As you humble yourself before him, as you respond to his invitation, you can draw near and you will hear these words. In the book of Hebrews, we read, we have a high priest. He's one who knows us. He's one who understands us. He's one that knows everything about us. And he's one that's identifying with us because he lived here on earth and was tempted in all points like we are, yet he didn't sin. And that's why we can come to the very throne of God and pray with confidence. That's what the scripture says. We can come with confidence. Why can we have so much confidence Because we have a lawyer, a high priest, an advocate, a representative with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One, who by his nail-pierced hands proves to the Father and takes hold of us and says, let's talk. you pray with me now father we call you father because you first 
called us to yourself. We recognize that you made the way for us to become your child. And Father, by your Spirit, we say, Abba, Daddy. We know that you're not angry with us, that you're not rejecting us. You've already judged the payment of our sin on the cross. And you, Holy One, have had your holiness satisfied in Christ. And so we come. You told us to come. We need your eternal perspective and your eternal ability. We lay down all of our cares. As the scripture says, we cast our cares on you because you care for us. So here's what's on our heart. Here's our many needs. Would you shine your light? And not only meet us, but lead us as we leave. So our Father in heaven, would you teach us how to pray?